Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and this is an interview show. This week, we're going to be talking with the authors of a new study from the Democracy Fund, the Voter Study Group. In this case, they've been taking a look at a report called On the Money, and we're joined by Lee Drutman, Vanessa Williamson, and Felicia Wong. Would you each mind beginning by just introducing yourself uh, and how you end up working with uh, the Democracy Fund and the Voter Study Group? My name is Lee Drutman. I'm a senior fellow at uh, at New America, and I've been working with uh, Voter Study Group since since it launched. Uh, I suppose I can go next. I'm usually last alphabetically, but I think I just beat out Felicia. No, um, I actually <laughs> get to take, yeah, I'm last alphabetically. Um, so my name is Vanessa Williamson. I'm a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, and uh, I was invited invited to join the voter study group, I think, last year. Hi, I'm Felicia Wong. Um, I run the Roosevelt Institute, uh, and I've been working with the voter study group for close to two years now. I've written a couple of different papers um, with the voter study group data, not only the one that we're talking about today, but also a paper on tax policy and what voters think about uh, the Trump tax cuts. What is the purpose? So what does this voter study group hope to accomplish that isn't already happening in the world, either in the scholarly community uh, or kind of in the public scholarly community? So what's the goal here for the uh, uh, for this kind of study, like uh, on the money? Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this is this is Lee. Um, I, I, I think what we're trying to do uh, is provide something that is uh, perhaps a little bit more rigorous and analytical than your your typical polling, but uh, a bit more accessible than your typical academic study and also a bit more timely. Uh, what, what we're really trying to, to do is trying to get policymakers and, and thought leaders to really understand the views of the American voters. Uh, and, you know, I think what's particularly unique about this, this group is that it's uh, uh, analysts across the, the ideological spectrum who are, who are kind of working together and checking each other's work and having, having conversations sometimes which are productive, uh, even if, if difficult. Well, this is Felicia. I'll just add that one of the things I really like about working with the voter study group um, folks is, as Lee said, both the fact that we are working with colleagues across the ideological spectrum. We're also working with people who actually work in different think tank institutions. Lee's at New America, Vanessa's at Brookings, I'm at Roosevelt, and that's kind of a fun thing to be able to do. And then finally, I like the fact that uh, we are trying to get this information out there to different folks in the media, to different kinds of political influencers, um, but in a way that isn't only tied to um, a political candidate, you know, or polling for one or the another party. Um, so it is a, 
unique institution. The voter study group is a unique institution in that way. Who and I heard uh, both of you talk about how one of the targets here is policymakers themselves. Who are your primary target audiences for reports like this? This is obviously in some ways supposed to be easier to understand, but do you envision a lot of general public people being able to read this or is more the hope that creating this creates a news opportunity in which some of this information will be disseminated more widely? This is Lee. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, uh, it's, there's a broad co- public conversation around a lot of these issues, and, you know, a lot of our reports have been uh, widely covered in the press, uh, which is often read by policymakers, although they might not themselves read these reports. I think uh, I think we're, we're participating in a broad public conversation uh, and trying to, trying to make analysis of public opinion both rigorous and accessible. Yeah, if I can jump in on that, this is Vanessa. I think that um, one of the things I really like about working with the voter study group is that you get to take relatively complex data and present it in a way that should be accessible to anyone who follows politics. I think it's really nice to be able to, you know, make things sort of widely available. So if we could kind of then uh, move towards talking about your most recent study from this June on the money, uh, which, by the way, I'll just say, uh, as a political scientist myself, this was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, but I do have some questions for our uh, and from listeners, too. Uh, one of the kind of paradoxes of voters is that they often kind of like certain policy positions, but only when they're described in a certain way. We call that framing effect. Um, and I couldn't help but notice one of the things that I saw uh, in On the Money was that the support for government reducing uh, income differences fell far short from the number of people who liked the policies designed to do that very thing. Thing. So when you're tackling an issue like this, uh, how do you t- tackle that problem of framing effect and how do you piece out what you think are the true respondents' beliefs uh, versus what they'll actually do in practice? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um from my perspective, I think that we know from a lot of research that uh, Americans tend to be, you know, uh, operational liberals, but philosophical conservatives, right? So when you ask a broader question, like the question about if you believe in redistribution, uh, you tend to get lower support than if you ask about specific policies, which, you know, which would, as you say, achieve those ends. Um, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of work showing that. And I think that we see it in our data, too. I think it's one of the reasons it's good to ask a variety of questions so that you can, you can see those effects right in the work that we were doing. Well, I think that's right. Now, I, you know, one of the big pieces of the study is to ask how a uh, range of voters um, and a very large number of voters thought about a number of different specific kinds of economic policy proposals that are currently in, you know, in the mainstream conversation. So everything from raising the minimum wage to raising taxes on families with incomes over $200,000, breaking up big banks, requiring employers to provide paid leave. And what we generally find on on all of these, with the exception actually of the reduced differences in income, is that um, the majority of voters um, do do support these policies. So when Vanessa says it's good that we asked a range of policy questions, um, I entirely agree with her because what you can really see in this is the overall findings from this study, which is that all, broadly speaking, all Democrats 
and one in five registered Republicans actually support the progressive economic view. And I think that's an important finding, especially in this political environment. Yeah. And I want to kind of move towards talking about that, because I don't think a lot of people would be shocked uh, by the finding that Democrats and Republicans have different levels of support on economic policies like minimum wage and progressive tax structures. But one of the bigger findings of the study is that Republicans are not as monolithic as we might imagine. And as a matter of fact, that when we parse this out based on income, Republicans look very divided. And those differences look pretty stark from the under $40,000 a year crowd to the over the $80,000 a year crowd, meaning that those uh, the policies that people support under 40000 as Republicans look closer to what uh, Democrats might think. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's because they see themselves actually benefiting from these policies, and you know a lot of a lot of uh, folks who vote Republican uh, would actually prefer the government to do more to help them, especially if they're they're lower income. Uh, especially often, a lot of those folks are are also female, but they vote Republican for other reasons, whether it's uh, they've been traditionally Republicans or for more often. Cultural reasons. So, you know, I think when uh, faced with a with a binary choice and forced to trade off among competing uh, issue priorities uh, or or loyalties, sometimes voters pick a party that doesn't represent them. And in this case, uh, that's the Republicans. Why do you think that's more true for Republicans uh, than it is for Democrats to have this mismatch between their economic well-being uh, and the party that they've chosen? Well, it, uh, there's an interesting asymmetry here, um, you know, throughout the electorate, which is that voters who are uh, higher income tend to be more engaged and tend to uh, know better what what their party uh, position should be. Now, with uh, Republicans, uh, folks who are higher income uh, would obviously like less government intervention in the economy so they can keep more of their money and spend less of it on health helping other people, that's, that's in their self-interest. Now, among Democrats, uh, higher-income Democrats, uh, you know, there's, there's their, you know, what, what you might consider to be their economic self-interest, which would be to, to spend less in taxes and have less in services. But actually, the reason that there are Democrats is, in many cases, is because they believe in a, in a fair uh, economy. And you know, also, they pay close attention to politics, so they know what they should think as Democrats. Uh, so there's no, there's no tension there within the Democratic Party. When you were looking at this data, did you end up seeing that the 40 and the 80,000 were the target rates or did you pick the 40 and 80,000 based on some prior kind of research or hypotheses? So we ended up using those levels and I'll let Lee take this later if he wants to jump in on it. But um, we ended up using those levels just to make sure that we had large enough groups that we felt very confident about the changes we were seeing or the differences we were seeing. But if you look at the, the graphs we present, you can see that on the Republican side, there's a relatively steady uh, change across income levels, right? It's not just that it's in big chunks of lower income, mid income, and upper income. We did that for simplicity. Uh, and you can also see that on the Democratic side, at the highest income levels, uh, you see a slight, a slight, very slight downturn. Um, 
so uh, we, you know, we chose these buckets um, just to make sure that, you know, we had buckets large enough, basically, to assess the data and feel really confident in what we were saying. But uh, that's not intended to imply that um, we think that the, the population, you know, it has a strong cutoff at those particular values. Not to get too wonky, um, but did you use any kind of statistical significance testing? And what kind of vari variance testing did you use to try to see the differences between these buckets, or did you do it along a continuum? Uh, Mrs. Lear. Um, you know, we, we tried out a couple of, of, of different cut points. Uh, and, you know, I mean, we also, and we also did it along a continuum and you can, and one, in one of the graphs, uh, we actually provide a scatter plot, uh, for both Democrats and Republicans along a continuum. So you can see how it looks. Uh, basically the cut points were, were more designed to, to be, to be illustrative. Uh, so it, it helps, helps us to really see the, the contrast, but there, you know, throughout the, Throughout the report, we provide uh, some some continuous analysis and some some more discrete analysis, uh, comparing different different buckets. So you can you can interpret those how how you like. So it's not going to be kind of surprising for those of us who study this, but when you guys dug into the question of explanations of wealth and poverty, nobody was really willing to attribute it to luck. As a matter of fact, we know luck plays a big role in a lot of the, well, the world. Um, so in a world where so much of our lived experience is about chance, why do you think that voters downplay chance? Uh, as a matter of fact, it was even interesting to note that there was some uh, partisan differences between how much luck mattered. How, why, why do you think that plays in the way that it does in your study? Well, I think that, um, you know, as a rule, there's a sort of psychological preference for believing that you can influence the direction of your life, right? It would be very hard to get up and out of bed if we really felt that everything was based in chance. So there's a lot of, obviously, psychological research on that question. Um, more generally, I think that... Um, People have strong connections, and you see that in our research, between their ideas of why uh, different Americans, for instance, have a different economic outcomes and what that would imply about what we should do about those things. So um, you see the strong relationship between you know, seeing um, uh, economic outcomes as the result of personal choices versus economic outcomes as a result of systemic unfairness, and you see that carry over into a perception of what should be done, right, and what people deserve. Obviously, that's a deeply motivating um, underlying uh, sort of framework that people use for thinking about, about policy. And so I think that, you know, it's interesting to think about how luck breaks down in that regard, right? On the one hand, obviously, you can't be responsible for your luck, sort of by definition, <laughs> is outside of your hands. But on the other hand, it doesn't have quite the same sort of political resonance that you see with some of the deservingness rhetoric uh, popular on the conservative side of the aisle versus the systemic unfairness rhetoric on the, on the left. Now, as we start to talk about that and we start tying it into parties here, do you think this has, and that's one of the kind of the end of your, uh, of your analysis, is how much of this has any real uh, electoral prediction power? Uh, what do you think about that? Well, uh, I think it's it's really hard to 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 tell uh, because we don't know what ultimately uh, the the election is going to hinge on and who the Democratic candidate is going to be and what platform uh, they're going to run on. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not sure how much this will predict any election, given how many other factors there are. Uh, you know, but it certainly suggests 
that if there's a Democratic candidate who uh, runs strongly on a on a on a set of progressive economic policies, that candidate is going to be playing to a favorable audience. Plus one, what Lee just said about a favorable audience across the board for any Democratic candidate who is going to run not just on um, economically progressive policies, but also on this narrative of, you know, systemic unfairness versus systemic fairness. I think the I think we see a very strong correlation between the narrative and the policies, and that's incredibly important. Um, the other thing I'd say is that, you know, you see a lot of uh, media pundits these ways kind of these days um, wondering whether uh, a kind the, a kind of economic progressivism is going to turn off independence or maybe um, create some kind of Republican backlash or conservative backlash. I think it's highly unlikely to see either of those things as well. We see um, significant numbers of independents who lean more economically progressive than lean economically conservative. And again, you see one in five uh, Republicans actually thinking more like Democrats on economic issues. So by and large, I think political uh, strategists could make the argument that running on aggressive, progressive economic policies is the smart thing to do, not just the sort of moral thing to do. So that, and that brings up an interesting follow-up question, and that is that, so taking away electoral power for a minute, as a messaging strategy, does it seem for the three of you that progressivism in the long term is the winning strategy for candidates across party aisles? Well, uh, it does seem to be any any candidate who takes on a on an economically progressive uh, agenda one that you know highlights the the unfairness and inequality in the the economy as as Felicia was saying I, I think you know uh, to to repeat myself is playing to a very favorable audience and I, I think that's one reason why uh, Donald Trump did so well in the Republican primaries because a lot of Republican voters said oh here's a guy who actually wants to make sure that we have Social Security and who actually wants to take on the, the, the big bankers and the wealthy and the wealthy financiers and the pharmaceutical companies. And that's the candidate that, that Trump pretended he was. He is governed in a very different way, but that was a very popular position that helped him to do quite well. So I think it's, it's clear that there are a lot of voters uh, in both parties, a lot of independents. I mean, well, almost all Democrats, you know, a decent chunk of Republicans and a large number of independents who are receptive uh, to a message uh, that says there is unfairness in the economy, and I'm going to do something to, to write that. Uh, so it seems, I mean, it's not just it's not just this poll. I mean, you, 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 you see this in, in poll after poll, uh, that, that most of these similar policies poll at 60, 70, sometimes 80 percent. That's a good point. And uh, Donald Trump, I think for many, has been a difficult uh, paradox to unbox. Do you think that your study helps to at least add some nuance to that view? You had begun to talk about that already. I mean, uh, Trump's economic policies have, at least as he ran, as we've noted, have been kind of far from the mainstream conservative views, right? We don't want to have free trade, international trade. We want to shut down those kinds of things. We want to make sure we're looking out for the worker. Does your study perhaps explain why 
Trump was a popular figure in the Republican Party and maybe a kinder, gentler Trump could be a more long lived Republican uh, figure. I wouldn't say kinder and gentler, um, perhaps more combative, but just just differently combative, combative to to corporate America as opposed to to Democrats. I think what would have uh, the, very different if Trump had decided to run as the as the candidate that he ran as. I I think he would be in much better shape heading into 2020. Instead, you mean he, to govern he, it? Sorry, you mean to govern it? Sorry, he governed it as the candidate he ran. Actually, spent a lot of time on the. On, on Medicare and Social Security, for example, like if he yes. had actually, yeah. Yeah, he had a winning strategy and, and he just had no uh, people to help him implement it other than perhaps Steve Bannon, who, uh, who but I mean, there was, he, he just ran into the uh, Republican policy architecture, which was, you know, Mick Mulvaney and, and Paul Ryan and tax cuts for the rich and, and crumbs for everyone else. I mean, I think if we're going to talk about uh, the role that Trump has played in our politics, there are actually a lot of voter study group uh, you know, um, reports that, that really play into it, including, I think, Liv Lee's other work on, on immigration, which I don't know if you want to talk a little more about. But I think that, sure. you know, there's a understanding the Trump phenomenon. I think that, you know, the economy is basically a, a minor motif compared to the sort of bulk of the, the sort of Trump rhetoric that I think really um, distinguishes uh, him from other candidates and from other Republicans substance of the study, I think that it's important to recognize that there is a really substantial minority within the Republican Party uh, that finds more progressive economic policies to be the really, uh, to be really appealing. Right. And I let's also point out the both economically left and economically right-leaning independents that we looked at. You know, you see um, economically uh, left independents more willing to say that they will are, would vote for a Democrat um, going forward. And I, so I think focusing not just on um, registered Republicans, but also those who have proven that they are willing to think independent of either party and are really looking for policy signals, economic policy signals for their can, from their candidates. That's also when you're talking about voting, those are very, very, very important targets for any candidate. At the end of your study, and I kind of want to follow up on that, you start to look at uh, partisan economic positions to try to see, well, does it have an effect on understanding voter patterns? And although it seems it does, as has long been the case, it seems that partisan loyalty, uh, not to be glib here, trumps uh, or is a better predictor than economic predispositions. You know, for example, uh, those who are mainstream or even left uh, Republicans end up in the 90 and 80 percent ranges uh, voting for Donald Trump. So to what extent do you think this effect, as you guys were uh, uh, talking about a minute ago, saying there's a very uh, open to be talking about progressive economic policies, but will it actually translate into votes if Republicans continue to vote for a Republican and Democrats continue to vote for Democrats, regardless of the economic policies that they have? I think that partisanship is a hell of a drug, as the cliche goes. And so it's absolutely the case that the best way to predict who's going to vote for a Democrat is to find out who's a Democrat, is a very, very powerful predictor. Um, 
And that, of course, is more true now than in the past, and there's very, very high levels of polarization in society today. Um, that said, of course, there are, are always people on the margins who you don't see in averages, but people who, you know, there are vote switchers out there. There are a few of them. Um, and so it's not impossible that it'll matter for the, some of these smaller categories of people. There are probably uh, regions of the country in which uh, the 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 sort of undecided voters are slightly more thick on the ground than others. Um, but overall, I think, you know, to, to be practical about it, if we're thinking about a candidate who's thinking to themselves, should I have a more or a less progressive economic policy? Uh, the data is strong in suggesting that it will cost almost nothing on the Democratic side to hold those positions because it is um, basically the lockstep position of Democrats. And it uh, certainly appeals to uh, a sizable minority of Republicans. So it's, if what you're thinking is in terms of risks as well as benefits, there are very, very few risks and there may well be some marginal benefits. Well, I would, again, point out the importance of independents in this as well. You know, independents who were economically progressive um, voted for congressional Democrats by 16 percentage points more in 2018 than they voted for the Democrats in 2016. 16 percentage points is a lot when you think that that particular voting place is 7% of the electorate. So this is, you know, this might be a, set, a conversation purely with respect to voting about people on the margins, but our elections these days are won and lost at the margins. And so um, I think it is important to take a look at these um, kinds of voters and to also say that, you know, if you are an economic progressive, you can both argue what you think is substantively right and be more or less assured that there's very little risk and, as Vanessa said, a lot of upside um, electorally in making your case. Now, I know that I have uh, monopolized a lot of your time. So if each of you, if you could kind of have what's the the major takeaway that you would want people on the on the money report to have? What would that be if you were going to sum up? This is the thing I want somebody to walk away with from my report. I think it's that there are uh, real divisions in the Republican Party uh, on on attitudes about economic policy, and that those divisions follow uh, pretty clearly along economic lines. I don't think I could say it better than that, Lee. I would say that that's right. Uh, of course, I agree with Lee and Vanessa on that. And I will also say that no matter what happens in the 2020 election, I think the longer term trend here is very clear. And the, the um, economic realities for so many Americans, Democrats or Democrat, independent or Republican, have gotten so bad that whether it's in 2020 or subsequently, eventually the fact that more Americans agree with more progressive economics is going to be uh, the winning strategy because that is just what um, really is going to help more voters. Uh, and if this is a democracy, then those are the kinds of policies that should win out. Now, so just one last parting question. Uh, so if you are able or you're willing, what are you guys working on next? 
Well, I, I, I'll, I'll use this as an opportunity to plug a, plug plug my forthcoming book, which will be out in, in January 2020, which is called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America, which is a, a bold uh, plan for electoral reform and a long analysis of, of uh, how we got to this current political impasse. This is Vanessa. Um, I'm working on two things. Uh, I've got a book uh, looking at the history of taxation and the development of American democracy, and that's uh, probably going to be a late 2020, early 2021 book, uh, Current Rates of Progress. And then uh, in early 2020, I'm going to be doing a project uh, assessing the impact of voter registration at tax time. So when people are filing their income taxes, they should be offered the opportunity to uh, register to vote, and we're going to measure the impact of a policy like that. And I can't wait to read both of Vanessa and Lee's new books. Uh, what I'm working on right now is more a set of projects around this question of what a progressive economic worldview really looks like, and I make the strong argument um, that, yes, we need and should be moving towards a more progressive economic policy, but th this is really a matter of democracy and not just a matter of uh, better economic uh, better economic policies. Moving beyond neoliberalism. Thank you for listening to The Politics Guys. I'd like to take this moment to ask that if you are interested in becoming a supporter, you can do that by checking out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politicsguys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. Your donations make interviews like this possible. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just some random thought you'd like to share with us, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us, where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. Subscribing to the show really helps us get out episodes, but so does word of mouth episode uh, advertising, and we greatly appreciate it. Leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use helps us immensely. Thank you so much. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Maskey, and Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by me, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. I hope you'll join us then.